Why, hello there, nerds. I'm Ash. And I'm Nat. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. Welcome back, nerdlings. It's that time of the week that Ash and I have come to look forward to. It is crime time! Today, we are tackling a case that has been close to my heart since I was a young 12-year-old kid. We're going to be doing a deep dive into the still unsolved case of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders, which happened in a small town within Mays County, Oklahoma, back in June of 1977. So we are going to be doing things a little different in this episode, and this will hopefully be the standard for when we tackle larger cases. This case is actually going to be a two-parter, and this is part one. We will have a few of these cases in the future that span multiple episodes because we just want to make sure we're giving these cases their dues as they are more involved and tend to span many years. I will fully admit that I am a little nervous about tackling this case as it is the case that literally drew me into true crime when I was a kid. I've been wanting to do this case forever and in doing so, you want to make sure that you're doing this case justice as it's still unsolved and it's been 43 years since the crime occurred. And while there were suspects, no one was ever arrested for the crime. So I personally first heard about this case back when I was 12 years old. And my mom is from a nearby town to Locust Grove, where she grew up, as is my grandma. My mom's side of the family is all from Oklahoma. And I had heard about this story through them. And through a series of family events, I actually ended up living in that same town that my mom grew up in. And it's probably about an hour, 45 minutes away from Locust Grove. And so this case is kind of the in definitely in the soil of Oklahoma, if you will. I personally lived in Oklahoma for about three years, and it was during my tween years. And that's, like I said, how I kind of fell into this case. My grandma was a huge reader, and she was really into true crime. And I, at that age, was a voracious reader, and I had gone through all of my books, and I was starting to read adult books, and she knew I was kind of interested in murder mysteries and such, so she actually talked to my mom, and they agreed that it was okay if I read this book that was written on this case back then. And unfortunately, we're talking, this was 20-some years ago, so I don't remember what the book was called. But it was a phenomenal true crime case writing of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. And literally, I have been into true crime ever since. So I definitely owe them for my love of it. And when I talked to my grandma and my mom about this case, it broke my heart and it's haunted me ever since then that this case was never solved. These families never got justice. Like I said, it's been 43 years. So... I knew that this case had always sat with me, and when I think of true crime, this is the first case that comes to mind. I also have a very special shout-out today, which is to my mom. We like to refer to her as the OG nerdling or mama nerdling, and she did all of the research for Ash and I today, um, mostly because she's from this town that was nearby. She's known this case since it happened. She remembers the day that this broke, and she was 19 years old at the time, and this 
completely shook their whole community. It's like I said, it's in the soil of Oklahoma. So it is a pinnacle case. Yeah. When you told me that your mom wanted to do the research for this case, it just kind of warmed my heart because I was like, oh, it's like a nice family. Yeah. Like it's kind of weird that our family is intertwined with true crime. It really (laughs) is. But yeah. But I was like, that is just so sweet. So go Mama Nerdling. Yeah, Mama Nerdling. She helped us out on this one. It was also really great because she had all of that experience from from growing up in that community and, you know, those memories of when this broke. So she really was able to bring a little bit of that that knowledge to us and gave us some really great resources to utilize. So shout out to the Mama Nerdling. And just to completely keep things um, mixed up today, (laughs) we're going to do things a little different. So I'm actually going to be the one to take the wheel today. I know usually it's our buddy Ash that leads us down, but today it's going to be me. I am going to be our pilot going down these dark dirt roads as we take a deeper look into the still unsolved murders of three young girls in rural Oklahoma back in 1977. We are truly leaving the light today, nerdlings, so I just wanted to give a quick disclaimer on today's episode, as we tend to do, when we are dealing with graphic crimes, especially when they are inflicted upon minors. This episode is a rough one, and we completely understand if this is not an episode for you, as it does deal with the brutal rape and murders of three young girls ranging in the ages of 8 to 10. So we completely understand if this may trigger some of you. We just like to give the heads up as the details of this crime are very traumatic and gut-wrenching. Exactly. And so with that, let's crack open this case as it's a long and torturous one I've personally found. Our case begins on June 12th through the 13th of 1977 at a Girl Scout camp named Camp Scott, which was located about a mile outside of the small town of Locust Grove. Camp Scott had had a 50-year tradition of hosting the local Girl Scouts each and every year. It had begun in 1927 and ended in the year of 1977. In 1977, the camp was being run by the Magic Empire Girl Scout Council and had grown to include 10 campsites, a great hall, and a swimming pool. The camp was situated along Snake Creek and Spring Creek near State Highway 82. It was a 410-acre compound that was located between the towns of Locust Grove and another town known as Tahlequah, Oklahoma. The camp was laid out much like most summer camps, with tents aligned throughout what was referred to as the Cookie Trail, as well as having staff housing and facilities that were sprinkled among the tent sites along the trail. Each site was named after Native American tribes, as there is a large part of Oklahoma's history that is shared among its Native peoples, and Camp Scott was a popular summer camp for many families. It was often exciting for most girls to go and spend, you know, two weeks of their summer at this popular campsite. On June 13, 1977, it was the last day that Camp Scott hosted the Girl Scouts as it closed its door after that tragic day and never opened them again. This day should have been an exciting adventure for the three young girls who would be residing in Tent 8. It has sometimes been reported that they were in Tent 7, but in all of the research that we did, I kept seeing Tent 8 was the location that it was referred to, and it tends to be the most commonly reported one, so we are going to go with Tent 8. The girls, Lori Lee Farmer, who was age 8, Doris 
Denise, as she preferred to be called, Milner was age 10. They were both from a city known as Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Michelle Goose was age 9, who was from a suburb of Tulsa known as Broken Arrow. Tent 8 fell under the Kiowa campsite, and their camp counselors were three girls, 18-year-old Carla Wilhite, Susan Ewing, who was also 18, along with D. Elder, who was 20. The counselors were responsible for a total of 27 girls who would reside in the Kiowa campsite, and the three girls, Denise, Lori, and Michelle, were all assigned to sleep together in Tent 8. While the three young Girl Scouts didn't know each other, they were all part of the Girl Scouts and each had their own unique personality. According to Betty Milner, Denise Milner's mother, Denise was in a hurry to do everything. She loved people, she was really outgoing, and she wanted to be a part of everything. In 1977, Denise sold cookies so that she could raise enough money in order to attend the two-week stay at the campsite. According to Betty Milner, Denise was excited to go until it came to the actual few days leading up to her leaving to the camp. It was at this time that Denise told her mother that she did not want to go, but Betty told her she should at least try it for a bit, and if after she got there, she still didn't want to stay, Denise could ask one of the counselors to call her mom and let her know that Denise still wanted to come home. In all reality, Betty really just wanted her to... Give it a try and see if she had any fun after going. I'm sure that it really may have felt like Denise was just having nerves about going and staying at the camp for two weeks by herself. Betty said for 40 years that those words have replayed in her head a million times, along with the unspeakable details of what had happened to her daughter. During the day of the 12th, all of the girls at the camp spent the majority of the day in their tents writing letters home as there happened to be a heavy thunderstorm that went into the wee hours of the night. So a side note here is, like I said, I lived in Oklahoma for three years. When they're saying thunderstorms, they're talking about torrential storms too. These aren't a light storm with some booming here and there. This is a very intense storm, generally speaking, when there's thunderstorms happening. Denise Milner wrote a letter home to her mom, as did the other girls. This is literally the last letter that Betty Milner has from her 10-year-old daughter. It read, Dear Mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day it rained. I have three new friends, Linda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay in camp for two weeks. I want to come home to see Kathy and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. As a side note, Kathy was Denise's little five-year-old sister who she was very close to. Lori Farmer also wrote a letter home that day. Hers was much more content and stated that she was excited for camp and had made some new friends. On the night of June 12, 1977, the girls all retired to their tents for bed. Several strange occurrences began happening as nighttime settled over the camp on June 12. At roughly 10 p.m. on the 12th, one of the counselors from the neighboring Comanche campsite saw a light flickering on in the woods heading north towards the Kiowa camp. At 10 p.m., D. Elder, who was one of the camp counselors for Kiowa, does a lights-out check around the campsite, and she notes that nothing looked amiss. At midnight, one of the adjacent group of Girl Scouts, they resided in Tent 6, they had to have camp counselor Carla Wilhite escort them back to their tents, as they were being loud while they were getting ready in the bathroom. 
At 1.30 a.m., Carla again has to go outside of Tent 6 and tell the noisy girls to quiet it down as they were being very loud for that hour of the night. While she was attending to the noisy girls at 1.30 a.m., Carla heard a low, guttural sound coming from the woods behind the tents of Kiowa. When she shone her torch in that direction, the sound stopped. The sound could be heard periodically throughout the night. So one thing to note is that Kiowa was laid out along the trail uh, for the cookie trail, but tent eight was kind of a little bit off to the side, so it wasn't directly on that main stretch of trail. Just as a side note, it just seems important to kind of understand how this is all laid out. We did find some images of how it is thought that the tents were all aligned back in 1977. We will post those on our Instagram and on our website for you guys too, so you can see the visual. When she shone her torch in that direction, that sound stopped, and the sound could be heard periodically throughout the night. Carla headed back to her site, her own personal site, and she goes to bed. After checking that the noise had kind of stopped, she couldn't really identify what it was. At around 3 a.m., it is reported that several other girls in nearby campsites were awoken by what sounded like a scream and what sounded like someone calling out for their mom. It's around this time that it is thought that witnesses heard someone moving around the campsite, but honestly, no one probably thought twice about it as at that time, you know, you've got literally a group of young girls out camping late at night, middle of nowhere. I mean, it's it's eight to 10 year old kids. They're going to be loud. Yeah, they're going to be loud. And for some of these girls, it's their first time going to camp. Yeah. So, I mean, I personally never went to camp. I just went to day camps, which I feel mm. like that was a big part I missed out on. But I feel like I mean, as a camp counselor, you probably might often hear girls, like, crying mm -hmm. out for their mom. I don't know if that's... That's, yeah. I don't know. They might, like, cry out for their mom at night because it's their first time leaving right. their mom's, their house. Their it's family. just really hard. Yeah. I um, I actually ended up going to a camp when I was about this age. Uh, we had just moved back up to Vermont, and... I, it's funny because I relate to Denise Milner a lot in this. I did not want to go to this camp. I got told, you know, it's good for you. You should go. And I remember having such a miserable time the whole time I was there. I still don't have fond memories of it. It's just scary out in the woods. I'm not a woods person. I, I, I completely relate to this case deeply that I'm sure there were lots of girls who just did not want to be there. One thing of note is that around this time, so roughly around 3 a.m., the girls from Tent 7, which was an adjacent tent to the infamous Tent 8, state that someone pulled their tent flap back and they shone a light into their tent. From what the girls could tell, it looked to have been a man. He quickly shut the flap and they could hear him move on to what was assumed to be Tent 8. Under the guise of the loud cracking thunderstorm in the early hours of June 13th, 1977, Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Goose, the three young occupants of Tent 8, were brutally assaulted and murdered while the rest of the camp slept on. At 6 a.m., Carla Wilhite awoke to her alarm and she began getting ready for the day she knew she had, was going to have to organize her girls for, you know, the rest of the afternoon's festivities. As she began walking towards the staff house, which was in a campsite known as Quapa Camp, she noticed something on the trail ahead of her. 
She saw what looked to be bundles in the fork in the path heading towards the staff house, and she assumed it was some leftover luggage that maybe one of the girls had left behind, you know, as they were moving in the day before. Unfortunately, as she drew closer, she realized what she was seeing. Lying next to the bundles was a young girl. She was lying face up and naked from the waist down. Immediately, Carla ran for the other counselors for Kiowa, Dee and Susan, in order to have them help her check on the other girls within their camp. It is immediately clear that the girls from Tent 8 are missing. While Susan and Dee are finishing checking on the other girls that are within their camp, Carla runs to the nurse's station in order to get help for the girl lying on the path. After Carla obtains the nurse, the nurse drives to the site and goes to the young girl and immediately feels for a pulse, but it is evident that the young girl is not alive. She is identified as being the body of Denise Milner, who was age 10, the girl who didn't want to stay at the camp in the first place. Meanwhile, Carla Wilhite has run to the camp director, who's a woman named Barbara Day, in order to notify her of what has happened. Barbara Day's husband, Richard, goes to join the nurse who was attending to the body of Denise Milner. It is discovered that the quote-unquote luggage that Carla had initially seen was actually the sleeping bags of both Lori Farmer and Michelle Goose. Both girls were found within the bags. They were also both deceased. The girls' bodies were lying under a tree more than 100 yards from their own tent. Richard Day, the husband of Camp Director Barbara Day, places a sleeping bag over the lower portion of Denise Milner's body, which is very sweet. Barbara Day, meanwhile, has called the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. As you guys got to remember, this is 1977 and 911 did not exist yet. So the only option was the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. The counselors all had the challenging job of trying to keep a large group of very young girls completely unaware of the occurrences going on during the day and what had obviously happened during the night. No one wants to scare any of these girls. So during this time, the families of Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Goose were all being notified that an accident had occurred and their daughters did not survive. The parents were not given any further detail as to what had happened to their daughters, not at that time, and... Unfortunately, they would later learn through the media later that morning what exactly had happened to their babies. That is insane. And I just can't believe that they weren't told immediately what had happened. I mean, I get that this was a long time ago, but it still seems so awful that they learned about the details as to what happened from the news instead of the officers or the camp itself. I know. I feel like... It would be a lot better for them to hear it from them than the media when everyone else is hearing about it at the same time. Right? It's crazy. Like, I'm I'm so blown away by that part. And I understand it was a long time ago, but geez. Like, you would think that they would at least tell them something. Yeah. I've, I've actually heard about that happening in cases even today that the families don't hear all the details until wow. everyone does, which... I don't uh, think is right at all. No, I don't either. That that does not feel right. We are going to go more in depth into this part of it as it comes up in the future of this case. And we're going to get to that in the second part, we promise. But for now, we're going to talk about the investigation and where that led police. 
So the other girls within the camp were sent back home to Tulsa, and the girls and their parents were only told that an accident had occurred, but the names of the girls affected were not released. One of the first officers on the scene was Oklahoma Highway Patrol Trooper Howard Berry. Trooper Berry is quoted as saying, quote, You're just not ready to drive up on something like that and find three little girls. That's something I'll take to my grave, unquote. Whew. Yeah. I mean, I can't blame him there. I don't think any anybody could drive up on that kind of scene and not be emotionally shaken to their core for the rest of their lives. I, I definitely couldn't. Yeah, that is something that I really, I mean, I know it's back then, but yeah, I really hope there are sources for people to get counseling. I know. I, I think back then it was a lot harder, but I hope anyone who saw those girls, anyone who was involved in the situation, whether it was their families, the counselors, anyone there, no one goes to a, a, a summer camp and expects this type of situation, so... We can only hope that people were able to get the help that they needed. Yeah, definitely. And I bet you since it was said it was an accident, I'm assuming that Ugh. the trooper was expecting an accident. An accident. Yeah. I wonder about that too. Or I think she actually, the camp director, did probably – well, it doesn't – it. hmm. That's a good question. I'm not sure on that, what was told to the trooper or what they were expecting when they got there. Yeah. Oh, so sad. It's, so, so sad. Yeah, this case is rough. So by 8 a.m. that morning of June 13th, the sheriff, Glenn Pete Weaver, was brought onto the scene. And he immediately realized that this wasn't a scene that he alone would be able to handle. And he then reached out and brought in the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations, or OSBI for short. During Sheriff Weaver's preliminary investigation, he observed only one set of boot prints that led from the Kiowa campsite to the place where the girls' bodies had been found. Sheriff Weaver has always remained adamant that despite the group of girls and other campers being moved out of the camp that morning to return home, the crime scene integrity remained intact. He does admit, however, that the scene wasn't officially secured until much later that day. While examining the girls' bodies, OSBI determined that Lori Farmer and Michelle Goose were both bludgeoned while they were inside their tent due to the blood splatter analysis conducted. It was determined that both girls had been sexually assaulted. Denise Milner was forced to walk away from the tent to the place where her body was found, and she was bound and had a gag in her mouth. She, too, was sexually assaulted, bludgeoned, and she was actually strangled to death unlike the other two girls. It also was determined that the killer may have tried to clean up the crime scene in the tent with bedding as blood-soaked sheets were found inside. Police were also able to identify one partial bloody footprint from the scene within the tent, which was identified as a size 9.5 boot print. During the investigation, they also obtained one lone hair that was said to possibly belong to someone of Native American descent. Semen was also found within the victims, as was a red flashlight that was left alongside the bodies. Tape and nylon rope were found at the scene as well. Analysis showed what looked to have been multiple weapons used on the girls when they were bludgeoned to death. No fingerprints were found during the investigation. 
police were able to determine that the tape and rope had been stolen from a nearby farm. And with very few leads to go on, the police began to narrow down potential suspects for this horrific crime. <sighs> that is a lot of information. Ugh, yeah. It's it's a lot. This case is... Oof. It's funny. I remember being 12 and thinking how sad this case was. And here I am, much, much older. And that's exactly my first thoughts is, this case is just so sad. I know. It like almost brings tears to your eyes as you're thinking about it. Absolutely. And and my mom and I were talking about that and just about how emotional this, this case makes you because these were such innocent children. They were just babies. And I just, I can't imagine these parents never getting their answers for 43 years, 43 years, that they're still waiting. They are still waiting to know what happened to their daughters that night. And that's one thing too that I want to mention is that we are going to pick up in our next episode in the follow-up with the potential suspects. It's pretty involved part of the, the case, so we wanted to make sure we were giving it its time as well. And so we will talk about that. Uh, Ash and I just, we, we kind of wanted to take a few minutes within the first half of this, uh, this two-parter. And we wanted to actually talk about how amazing these little girls were just before we conclude part one of this case. So in part two, Ash and I are going to talk more about a couple of the suspects there was one primary suspect specifically who is a large part of the second half of this case, and that is who Ash and I are going to focus on in the second episode. But we, the two of us, just wanted to take a few minutes. You know, we wanted to talk about just the overall impacts of this case at this point in time. I mean, we're talking about 1977 here, so. It's a different world. Cell phones didn't exist. Technology didn't exist. These girls were really in the middle of the woods in rural Oklahoma. And it was them and some camp counselors who weren't much older against what is a big bad world sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And the thing about this case that we wanted to stretch is that these girls matter. Yeah. And they're not just names in a newspaper or on TV. Absolutely. They so matter. And, you know, that's one of the things we want to highlight in this episode is just who these girls were. Oftentimes, you know, I know Ash and I have said this before, it's easy to forget when you're reading about a case or if you're, you know, reading a newspaper article about a murder that happened or, or anything like that. It is often easy to dissociate with those people, with those pictures, with those names. You, you, you almost, in a way, stop thinking of them as fellow humans. And we don't want you to think like that for this case, any case, really. But we wanted to remind everyone that these were little girls. They were 8, 9, and 10 years old. These could be your kids. These could be your sisters, your siblings. I mean, they matter. They absolutely matter. Yeah, so Nat and I actually decided to take a little time to kind of go over the girls and kind of let you guys know a little bit about them. Yeah. So we figured we would devote that part to this second half of this episode. So let's get into it. Denise Milner is described as being outgoing, chatty, and exceedingly smart. 
Her mother, Betty Milner, was quoted saying, quote, she loved to talk. She loved to be with people. She taught herself how to read, write, and count when she was just four years old, unquote. That's amazing. Amazing. That is so amazing. Denise loved to go to the library, and she also loved to do activities. She was into gymnastics, tap dancing, as well as being involved with her local Girl Scout chapter. Denise frequently spoke about being a big sister, and all she wanted was to have a little sister. And she got her wish when she was just five, and the Milner family welcomed their youngest daughter, Kathy, into their family. The two sisters were close despite the five-year age difference, and Denise was often described as a little mama. That is so, so sweet and so cute. I know. Like, that just makes my heart just get all warm and fuzzy because, I mean, I've said it before, I've always wanted a sister. Yeah. And that is just the sweetest thing. I get it. I have a little sister, and she is definitely my my little buddy and as well as you <laughs> and she's you know she's quite a bit younger than me and I felt the same way as Denise you know she, I I definitely I always tease her that she's my little one and that you know I always treat her like I'm her mother so like I'm her 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 mama mama hen <laughs> so I get it and that's a special relationship oh definitely so one thing of note, and just remember that this was 1977, Denise was one of the only African-American campers to attend that Girl Scout camp that year. Denise had been very excited about the idea of camp until a few days before she was about to leave. It was like she flipped and started having all this anxiety and fear about going to camp that week. And she even told her mom multiple times that she did not want to go, which... As little as she is, intuition, nerdlings, it's a thing. Always trust your gut. For sure. She was she was 10 and she already had that intuition. You got to wonder. It's something. I mean, she would have been so excited. She saved up all summer for the – or all year long for this. And then to just – like something, some bad feeling. Yeah. Yep, definitely. Yeah. And one thing of, of note is that in reading this case, Betty, Denise's mom – actually mentions a, a few days before she got the call regarding what happened to Denise, her youngest child, Kathy, Denise's little sister, had come up to her and was asking about what happened when people died and kind of kept on about it and was trying to understand the concepts of death, which is really surprising and kind of out of left field for this little five-year-old to be questioning that and then two days later her big sister is found murdered yeah that's that is really spooky to me actually because it is i mean i understand anxiety sure i've had bad anxiety about certain things like if i have a certain trip yeah of course i'm super excited about it and then as it comes i'll get a little nervous but i mean uh, it's just hard because it's like anxiety, intuition, it's all like on like a little scale. Yeah. But the part about her sister saying that just gives me goosebumps because that is crazy that a five-year-old would just start asking questions about that the same time frame that this were to happen. Yeah. I thought the same thing. And, you know, they they were very close. And I don't know. I feel like when you're family and you're close and you love each other, there's just this bond that maybe goes beyond 
beyond any kind of science or any kind of thing. It's it's like what they talk about that mother's intuition. Uh, it, to me, that's what it feels like that there's something there that's spiritual or not not like religious, but just spiritual, something outside of of science. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. Unfortunately, Denise's misgivings would come to truth that faithful day in June of 1977. And when talking of that day, Denise's mother, Betty, states, quote, the pain doesn't ever go away, unquote. Nope. I just don't think it can. I personally, I can't imagine any and an ounce of the pain that any of these parents feel. I just don't think that's realistic. But I can genuinely say their grief must have been staggering, just staggering. And I know it's been 40 years, but I would bet you that to them, it probably doesn't feel like it's been 40 years. I'm sure that every single day for them, it feels like it was literally just yesterday when when they lost their little girls. Lori Farmer, who was the youngest of the victims, wasn't just the youngest of the three girls. She was also the youngest girl at the camp that year at only eight years old. Like Denise, Lori was considered exceptionally gifted. She even skipped a grade ahead in school. So Lori should have been celebrating her ninth birthday on the week that she was murdered. And instead, her parents had to bury their daughter. Oh, God. That... Yeah, it's just a few days later she was going to be turning nine. That's so, so awful. Awful. Just awful. Lori was the eldest of five children, but unlike many children, Lori thrived off of being a big sister. And it makes sense to me a little bit why all three of these girls seem to immediately click. I feel like when you're that young, you just kind of know kindred spirits when you meet them. And I feel like all three of these girls were... A little bit of kindred spirits. They were all very smart, kind of outgoing, talkative girls. So it's it's kind of sweet that they all clicked so quickly. Lori, she loved to help her mom. And she really enjoyed helping her mom take care of four other younger siblings. To the point that she even named her youngest sister Callie, who was literally only a year old when Lori was cruelly taken from this world. Sherry who is Lori's mom, still has not come to terms with her daughter's death. Like I said, I don't think you ever can in that situation. I just don't think you can. And I'm amazed that these parents were able to continue. I really am. Yeah, seriously. And especially raising the other siblings. I can't right? even imagine what that's like. I can't. I don't think, uh, I don't want to. I just, my heart breaks for their families, all of them. One thing that Sherry has mentioned is that that day after she got the news of her daughter's death, and of course, remember, they were only told it was an accident and they weren't given many details. Sherry actually watched the news later that morning. And of course, that's how she found out that her daughter had been murdered. And so, you know, she was realizing that her baby wasn't going to be coming home and she was seeing all of the parents watching as their children were getting off of the buses in Tulsa from the camp. And they were getting to hold their children and getting to hug their babies. And she was hearing the parents say things like, God was with my child that day. And Sherry is actually quoted as saying, how could they say that? Was God not with my child? I think perhaps that God was with my child the most. He was with those three girls the most, which 
I don't know why, but every time I read that or hear that, it just gives me chills. Yeah, it's ooh, that is a tough one. That is really tough because it's like how why do the other right. parents have the right to say that? Right, and it's you know that I'm sure all she's thinking is, I wish I could say that too. Yep, like I wish I could say that. And one thing that totally resonated with me is that Sherry mentioned that she still wakes up every night between the hours of 2 to 3 a.m., which, of course, is the assumed time of death of her little Lori. Yeah. She's also quoted as saying, I have never doubted God, but I have wondered why it was my child. Ugh. Yeah. God. I just – I imagine every parent who has ever lost a child has asked that question themselves. For sure. Like, this shouldn't ever happen to anyone, let alone children. Yeah. Yeah. Michelle Goose was also a light in her parents' eyes, who was taken away too soon that awful day in June. Michelle's last words to her family before her tragic death was to ask them to water her African violets. Her family continued to water her plant even after she was gone. That breaks my heart. I know. That is this whole case. Every time you turn a corner, it's just another thing. I think it's a case that when you, no matter what, reading it, you know, talking about it, it's just, it's a sad case. It is just such a sad case. And there's little bits like, you know, watering the plant or the mom, you know, Sherry waking up every night that really sit with you because they're so human. I don't have a better word for that. Those are just, it really comes down to how do people cope with grief? Like how how do you ever cope with that? Yeah, uh, it's a it's a tough pill to swallow that that question. I I don't have an answer for that. That's nope, I don't either. It's it's hard. Yep, I think every day just kind of day by day. Yep. Michelle was known as a sweet and athletic little girl. Michelle's father, Richard Guse, threw himself into victim advocacy after his daughter's death. He was instrumental in pushing for passage of the Crime Victim Witness Bill of Rights, a package of laws adopted by the Oklahoma State Legislature in 1994. Richard Guse is quoted in a Tulsa World article as saying, quote, I decided something has to come from this, from her life, unquote. Whew, gut punch. Yeah. The Gooses, like the other families, had to learn from the media what happened to their children that day. Richard is also quoted as stating, quote, because of my daughter, maybe the world would be a little better place to be. Hopefully some good is coming out of this, unquote. Wow, that's powerful. And he was such an advocate to try and help other families going through what his family was going through. This case just, honestly, it it makes me cry. I've, oh, it's always hit me hard, this one. And like I said, this is such a brutal case. It's such a tragic one. And the worst part is is that the, literally the monster who did this never saw a jail cell. Never, ever did time for his or her actions that day. They literally never had to pay. They never had to pay the price for this. And these little girls were never given the chance to grow up. They didn't get to go to high school. They didn't get to get married, have children, find their dream careers, or even hug their parents just just one more time. 
they didn't even get to do that. Instead, all of those precious moments were just viciously taken from them. And so Ash and I wanted to end this episode just with a little bit about each girl, just to, like we said, remind folks that while it's a true crime case, there are innocent little faces that are behind each of these names. These are innocent little girls who never got to leave Camp Scott alive on the days of June 12th into the 13th back in 1977. Yeah, we both thought it was really important to keep these girls' names alive and their personalities and just like the little yeah. little facts about them. We thought that was really important to this case. Definitely. Definitely. And with that, nerdlings, this concludes part one of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. We'll be following up with part two in our next episode. In that, we will talk about the potential suspects, one primary one in particular, and we will also talk about the aftermath of this case as it still is an open case to this day. We will catch you folks in part two. And if you like this episode or any of our others, please hit that subscribe button. And feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast subscriber. You can also hit us up on our Instagram at CrimeTimeNerds or check out our case notes at CrimeTimeNerds.com where we post references and photos of all of our cases. We also have a Twitter account, which is at CrimeTimeNerds and an email you can reach us at, which is CrimeTimeNerds at gmail.com. Until next time, you crime-loving nerdlings. <laughs>